seriously, just, just to make sure we have a good, fair opportunity to take questions from the floor. First of all, let me say a big thank you to you, Peter, for that excellent yeah. presentation. We all appreciated that very, very much indeed. Uh, but I'm sure there are questions bubbling away in our minds. I was just talking to some friendly people in the back row who are doing some studying at the moment, and they're hoping to pass an exam as a result of what they've heard tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, high and I'm sure they will. But let's uh, take this opportunity. Remember the context of this is honest questioning. Let's be open. We might not all be in the same place, but let's ask those questions and try and learn as much as we can from, from Peter. So can we have um, our first question, please? And Paul has a microphone to receive it. Peter, rather than me, will be answering. <laughs> questions, please. Thank you. Sorry, of the natural explanations for the resurrection, which do you think is the most difficult to deconstruct? Uh, okay. So as I said, there's no uh, kind of consensus amongst people who don't believe in the resurrection on an alternative explanation. That said, people certainly do put forward alternative explanations and then disagree with other people who put forward different alternative Explanations, and that's kind of been the, the history of thinking about this since sort of German and liberalism of the 19th century, where people put forward, you know, Jesus just kind of swooned on the cross and didn't die, and then he revived in the, the cold of the tomb. It's always somehow the cold of the tomb that revives him rather than finishes him off. I don't know why. Um, you know, revives, gets the stone out of the way somehow, appears to the disciples and says, I am the Lord of life, quick, ring an ambulance, you know. Uh, which was kind of the criticism that someone like Strauss put of that. Um, but he was, a, you know, a liberal German theologian in the 19th century and so on. So there's sort of been a history of putting forward attempted naturalistic explanations and then having that shot down by the guy who wants to put forward his proposed naturalistic explanation until things have now got to the stage where most folks, well, I think, as I quoted, give a sort of considered opinion, okay, we don't have a sort of obvious alternative to the resurrection. Rather, what we have is uh, an a priori philosophical objection to belief in the resurrection. We, we object to mentioning miracles within history or we object to the knowability or the possibility of miracles, maybe because we, we believe that atheism is true, or something like this. But to address your concern directly, I would say probably that the, the leading um, naturalistic attempt to kind of explain away the data would be some sort of hallucination hypothesis, um, which would have to be combined with some other hypothesis to explain why the tomb was empty. Um, but you could at least say, uh, yes, people sincerely believed that they met the resurrected Jesus, thus you're admitting that historical data. But then you can say, but they were mistaken somehow. Uh, and the most plausible reason to think that they were mistaken uh, is probably they had some sort of hallucinatory experience says. And this is where it starts getting particularly difficult because it's not just you know, one person at one time <laughs> having an hallucination. Um, and indeed ancient people in ancient cultures knew as much as we do about sort of post-bereavement visions of the dead and so on. 
uh, and knew that if you had that kind of experience, that meant that the person you were having a vision on was dead, <laughs> rather than that they had been raised from the dead in the middle of history, kind of counter to your previous theological belief system and so on. Um, and it's not individuals, just one individual, it's lots of individuals, not just individuals but groups of people, not just on one occasion but on different occasions, different frames of mind, over a long period of time. It's not just one sense that has to be coordinated in the experience but multiple senses as I pointed out. You've got to think that a group of you had an extended conversation of back and forth with Jesus wherein you not only saw him, but also heard him, and perhaps touched him, took some fish off him whilst he was cooking it, etc. And that then starts breaking the boundaries of anything that's within the sort of annals of psychological literature. So actually you would probably be pushed to saying something like, it was a set of miraculous hallucinations. (laughs) Which indeed some... Theologians have taken the position that the resurrected Jesus was what they would call a, a vertical vision. That it was visionary in as much as, you know, if you'd had the, VA, you know, the, the data camera there, it wouldn't have seen anything. But it was vertical in as much as um, God was, through that experience, really telling them something true about Jesus, that he had been exonerated by God, etc., etc. But, okay... But they go for resurrection as an explanation. Um, And that's an explanation that also explains why the tomb is empty. So it's a simpler explanation and so on. So I I still end up thinking that resurrection from the dead is the best explanation. Um, Thank you. Questions, please. Let's have some others. Yeah, and a really important question. Um, I would indeed break up thinking about the resurrection of Jesus into those two questions, really. And I, and I, and I do in my, my book, Understanding Jesus. First of all, the question which I d- addressed directly in my talk this evening of, did Jesus come, was he alive again after he'd been dead, basically? Did he rise from the dead? I mean, the the Greek word resurrection literally just means standing up again. Did he rise from the dead? But you're absolutely right that the claim that the New Testament writers make is not merely that Jesus was resuscitated. He's not just another Lazarus. 
He was resurrected, and this has a particular theological meaning within the Judaism of the time. Um, It puts a different spin on it, but it's a spin on a concept of resurrection, not just resuscitation. And that is, uh, again, general agreement that this the scholars of the past sometimes try to take Paul's writings about the nature of his resurrection and so on, and when he there talks about the spiritual body, to kind of take that as a sort of, oh, he's talking about something that's a bit like Casper the ghost. You know, it's a spiritual body. You know. But the emphasis within Second Temple Judaism would have been on the body. It's a spiritual body. rather than it's a spiritual body (laughs) which the church has has done the scholars have done particularly under the sort of influence of of more sort of um, Greek Platonistic kind of thinking about the nature of of the human being yes Christians believe there's more to a person than just the the body there's the mind or the soul or the spirit or whatever you call it Um, but we are created by God to be embodied beings and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and indeed the resurrection of the universe the new heavens and earth um, the resurrected Jesus is our first empirical sample of where creation is heading as it were and it's a frustratingly small sample <laughs> as, as well um, but it is our first sample of that so when Paul is talking about the spiritual body he's talking about a body that is now dominated by the spirit of God that is fit for the kingdom of God because it obeys God Um, that is no longer weighed down by the flesh in the Pauline sense of kind of when we talk about the world and the flesh and the devil the sources of of temptation in, in, in the world and that we're kind of we are purified we are renewed in the image of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth and at the moment we're on this sort of journey of sanctification that will never be completed until the, the, the hereafter and the, then the new heavens and the new earth so there's an emphasis, it is a bodily concept but as one of the quotes I had there said it's a transformed kind of a body um, some scholars have, have, have talk, talked about the coined the word, I think it's N.T. Wright coins the word transphysical to kind of talk about it and there is data from the New Testament accounts of the resurrection that I think go to argue not only that Jesus was alive again after he was dead, resuscitated at least, but that he was resurrected. There is, again, using the same kind of criteria, there's data about him suddenly appearing in locked room. There is data about him being with the disciples at the meal after the road to Emmaus, breaking the bread and being gone. Um, there is the data about him being able to show the signs of his crucifixion. And yet it would be very odd to think that for eternity, now, now Jesus is you know, he's going to be there in eternity with bloody wounds gaping in his wrists and his side. And yet the resurrected body of Christ can somehow display those signs in a way that takes them up into glory and makes them a glorious thing because they're, they're the thing that speaks of his love and self-sacrifice and, and so on. Um, 
so that I think there is a set of data that, again, you can glean from the New Testament that actually points towards resurrection in that more, excuse the pun, full-bodied sense. Um, And, of course, the fact that the original disciples, despite their socio-religious preconditioning to the contrary, suddenly start proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. They don't claim the resuscitation of Jesus like Lazarus. They don't say he's done a Lazarus. They say he's been resurrected and we too will be resurrected and thus you get folks like, I love, you know, go and read Ignatius from the early church fathers in the, in the first uh, you know, one generation removed from the disciples and Ignatius will say like, great, throw me to the lions in the arena in Rome, tear me limb from limb if only I can participate in the glory of Christ with whom I will be resurrected, you know, because I will have a resurrection body like him. So, yeah, feed me to the lions, because I'm only going to be with the lions temporarily. Thank you very much. That's... <laughs> I'm going to give advance notice. In a moment, I'm going to invite younger members of our gathering who might be studying at the moment to ask a question. If you have an opportunity to think about a question you might want to ask. And in the meantime, while you're warming up and getting that question ready, any other questions? One gentleman and then Kevin back there. Peter, one of the regular cabals we hear from the atheist lobby is that there is a distinct lack of documentary uh, evidence out there outside of the Bible which talks about the resurrection of Christ. Setting aside the fact that that claim may not be as true as it sounds, Mm. would you like to comment on? Yeah, sure. I mean, and it's a cavil that's also made generally about the life of Christ as well. And the new atheists in particular use this and overplay it and say things like there are no sources outside or there are one or two or whatever. When there are about at least a dozen within a century or so that mention the crucifixion, for example, or the existence of Jesus or gives us some information about early Christian beliefs and so on. But there's not a great Amount, you know, the prime source of information is is what we have in the New Testament, and this is not unexpected. Um, very little survives from the ancient world in terms of its literature. It is surprising that we have as much as we do about Jesus. Uh, we have as much as we do about him because certain people had certain beliefs about him that made him very important to them, that made it worthwhile spending their money getting scribes to laboriously copy out and make copies of the Gospels and the letters and so on and to spread that literature around the ancient world in such a way that fragments of it in the you know, survive that the travails of the ancient past in, in a way that loads of other ancient literature doesn't. So it's not surprising that we have very little in extra-biblical literature about him. Plus also, you know... What are they sort of wanting? They're wanting, you know, I want a non-Christian who will testify that Jesus really rose from the dead. But of course, I want them to remain a non-Christian because, you know, I'm not going to trust a Christian source. 
But then anyone who sincerely believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead is pretty likely to become a Christian, I think, <laughs> and therefore would fall outside of their... You know. So there's something a little odd about the, about the request for that kind of, of data. And the, the, the closest we're going to get is something like St. Paul, who was as, you know, a persecutor and then became sincerely convinced that he'd met the resurrected Jesus, and then, well, what did he do? He became a Christian. But saying, but I'm not going to listen to him, I'm going to discount his early, first-hand eyewitness testimony <laughs> because he believed it was true. It's a bit like saying, well, let's, you know, let's do the history of the Second World War and let's investigate the Holocaust, but I'm not going to believe anything written by any Jews who survived the concentration camps because they believed the Holocaust happened. I want some, some objective historian. <laughs> like, so I'm not going to read the works of Primo Levi or... <laughs> like, uh, yeah, so I, I think there are big problems with that kind of cavail, yeah. Just before we come to the gentleman in the front, are there any questions from the, uh, the younger members of our audience? You don't have to ask one, but let's give you that opportunity. Marvellous. Yes. Bravo. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, you'll have to forgive me if I don't this. Sorry? Um, as we've been arguing today for the evidence for the resurrection, another key idea was uh, the ascension. Mm. Um, is there any examples that you can give me for proof of this ascension? Right, okay, very interesting question. Yeah. I, I think... Clearly, there's not as much evidence for something like the Ascension as there is for the Resurrection. Um, if you classified it with other miracles of Jesus, there are, there are some miracles of Jesus that have very little evidence for them. There are some that have multiple early independent, etc. sources for them. And I guess the Ascension has not a great deal of evidence for it compared to the resurrection, but it does have evidence. So it is it is uh, mentioned in Luke by Luke um, in Acts at the beginning of Acts um, as well. Um, so you've got you've got multiple. Um, you have no countervailing evidence. This is one thing that. Some people have tried to sort of take the um, Jesus went to India kind of <laughs> route and uh, no, or you know, left with Mary Magdalene and set up home somewhere and fathered the Grail and Dan Brown and you know <laughs> whatever. Um, those are all sort of late legends that have no evidence for them. So you do you would sort of face the question of, of what happened to him um, and, and clearly the, the, the early church was not going around thinking Jesus was still around the place um, and the teaching on the, the sending of the Holy Spirit is intimately linked to the absence of, of Jesus with his disciples anymore uh, as well you know I will send another one um, only because I've gone, then I can send the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, and so on. So it's bound up with 
other teachings that are littered all over the place as well, which would be something to, to think about. Um, but no, I mean, not every incident in Jesus' life is, is testified with the same degree of evidence from a purely historical viewpoint. Um, and I think it's, you know, isn't it fortunate stroke providential that the, the most evidence congregates around the most important miracle? <laughs> yeah. One gentleman in the front here has a question. Do we go to the gentleman at the back? Come on, just recognise. If I could ask a, a philosophical question, Ooh, good. a possible question, uh, <laughs> Dr. Lewis. Um, the, um, you know, there's an idea amongst the sort of 60s uh, uh, sort of existentialists uh, that, uh, you know, like Karmas and uh, Sartre, uh, that we, you know, we, 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 we seek for meaningless. And, uh, and I'm just wondering if that, because if I have been asked by some mm. people rather contemptuously that, you know, oh, does your, does your Christian faith give you meaning? You know, is that, I'm just wondering, is that idea still sort of um, embedded in, in our society? Mm. And uh, my, I think back to about five years ago, uh, when my, uh, my wife had to go to the funeral of a beloved sister who had been very, very seriously mm. and profoundly disabled in her mid-40s and died in her very early 50s. Uh, obviously leaving behind a broken-hearted husband and two little grandchildren uh, and a son. Mm. Uh, you know, in, you know, surely the only place we can look for it, for meaning, on us is the resurrection in the mm. sort of evangelism and uh, partial care issues there, surely. Mm. Mm. Um, sorry, sorry, it's a bit rambling, I know. That's okay, that's great, yeah. <coughs> sure, thanks. Um, Yes, the question of meaning and the question of truth. And as I said in my opening remarks, I think Christians want to emphasize that we believe in the resurrection because we, we, we think it's true. And that we don't merely think it's true because we feel that would be comforting if it were true. And you can't just make yourself believe something directly. Um, however appealing you, you think it is. Um, so, you know, um, if anyone here can now sincerely believe that a pink elephant is orbiting my head, I will give you a million pounds. Now, that, you know, it's very appealing to be offered a million pounds. Or to make it more plausible to you, because obviously I don't have a million pounds, I'll give you a hundred quid. I can afford that, okay? But you can't just make yourself believe something. Um, so it comes down to really an accusation of sort of self-deception, sub-unconscious kind of motivations. So really, this, this is going back to the sort of Freudian critique of, of, of religion, um, which is still made by folks like Richard Dawkins, uh, for, for example, that, that, um, that we should be sus suspicious 
of things that we would like to be true um, and kind of that's a reason to disbelieve it um, and indeed the fact that something is you know Dawkins will particularly argue you know we, the sort of man must grow up and face the reality of the cold stark meaningless universe this is the sort of manly scientific enlightenment thing to do and that's kind of almost a sort of badge of its rational honorability as a belief to say life is meaningless and I faced it squarely in the you know but you can't so easily divorce the innate desires of the human heart for things like meaning, purpose, and afterlife, if that's bound up in that, in the kind of Freudian way. And, and, and for that, I point you particularly to um, C.S. Lewis and his discussion of what's called the argument from desire, which, which does a kind of judo move on the kind of Freudian attack on religion. You know, you only believe in God because it's a subconscious desire for a lovely father figure who will make your life nice and etc, etc. Leaving aside all the sort of hard stuff about believing in God like, you know, judgment and feeling that you're a sinner, etc, etc, which isn't necessarily immediately appealing. But you could say with folks like Lewis that the mere fact that we have an innate kind of natural desire for meaning and purpose and so on, far from being a good reason to be suspicious of the idea that there is something in reality that answers to that desire <laughs> might indeed be rather a good reason to think that there is something in reality that objectively does answer to that, to that desire. Um, for example, in lots of other instances where we look at innate natural human desires, they do seem to relate to things that can satisfy them. <laughs> um, and really, you end, do end up getting driven to the position of, of, of saying... A world in which such innate natural human desires for things that are so existentially important to us, a sense of meaning and purpose, values, justice, etc. A world that didn't answer to those innate human desires would be an absurd world, as Camus says. Yeah. You know, Camus' question of why not suicide would become a really live question if you really thought that you lived in such you had such an absurd existence. Um, but then, which is the more reasonable approach to take, to say, yeah, reality is, is absurd, or to say, oh, maybe this is a signpost to pointing to something that really answers it. Um, so there, there are existential ways of sort of framing that discussion, yeah. uh, and there are more sort of evidential ways of, of framing it, but they are actually connected. Yeah. Thank you. We have a question from Robbie on the back row there. <coughs> thank you um, for your talks and your Thank you. Um, my question stems from this evangelistic thing that is, mm. so I'll briefly explain one of those to you. My <coughs> supposition is to when I do evangelism is that this is so true, surely you'll believe it. And that ultimately, if I go around sharing truth, it will make everyone believe. Uh, and that's generally how I've often thought. If I can be as close to the way I understand truth that I can explain it correctly, mm. surely people will understand the belief. Now, recently on my football team, there's a young man who's grown up in a Christian home. Mm. Uh, for the past four years, he hasn't been attending church. And to be honest, his answer has been, and this has baffled me, and kind of um, stunned me a lot, is I've presented a lot of empirical 
evidence to him, rational evidence mm, to mm. say logically we can see how Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. We can see that rationally and, and empirically. But his argument has often been, yeah, it might be logically true, but you know what? I don't really care. And it's led me into a lot of philosophical questions looking at maybe axiology, value we place upon these things, yeah. that we place upon logic. Mm. It makes me think to myself, Andy really doesn't care as much about empirical mm. reasoning and logic as much as I thought would compel him to become a Christian. Yeah. And I guess my question is that from a postmodern human being, which inevitably I am living in the world that I am, the meta-narrative of redemption, mm. of salvation, has a lot less significance and meaning to a man who grows up in a world where logic isn't as important. How do I take this on board, this empirical, logical, reasonable evidence, mm. and say to a world that doesn't care as much as potentially they used to within a modern mm. paradigm, and say, this is really, really important? That's my question. Great. <laughs> it, is a, it, is, it is a good question. <laughs> I will now give the, the ultimate and concise five-minute answer. Um, <laughs> well, it could be. It's, it's such broad, isn't it? I'm just organising some, some thoughts. So, in a sense, this connects very much with the, the question from the gentleman here that we just had about sort of cashing out the existential value, the meaning. Um, what role does this play when the, the rubber hits the road when I'm going to a funeral? You know, what does this say about my whole approach to life, the universe, and everything? Um, because the cross and the resurrection of Christ stand at the heart of, of Christian spirituality. And Christian spirituality is a matter of what you believe is true, your attitudes towards what you believe is true and what that leads you to do. But your friend has a spirituality. He has a non-Christian spirituality. He will fill those compartments of spirituality in, in a slightly different way because he's not a Christian. But there will be things that he believes. Whether or not he's thought much about it, he has certain assumptions about the nature of reality. He has certain affections and commitments and desires and emotions of the, of the heart. And things that he values. He does have things that he values. He, he might adopt a sort of postmodern, casual, yeah, laser, you know, nothing, hey, whatever, man, kind of attitude. <laughs> but, I, you know, I bet he's passionate about, what is it, football that you play? <laughs> I bet he doesn't like cheating from the other team, etc. There will be the hot buttons for him that he cares about. Um, and those connect with truth and evidence and reason. You know, was it offside or not? <laughs> okay, it either was or was not offside. The ref either was or was not correct to make that call, etc. And he will get wound up and worked up about that because he deeply cares about that. So he does deeply care about things that are connected to what he believes are true, and that does lead him to behave in a certain way <laughs> in life. So it is finding the connection. And the, the thing that you said about explaining clearly is, is really key. Uh, in, a, in apologetics, we're trying to share what we believe to be the truth, 
And yes, we want to give um, good reasons for believing that it's true, but also we want to communicate well what it is that we're thinking is true. And the fact that what we're trying to communicate is not merely a set of beliefs, but it is a spirituality, it's a way of life we're offering. And this is why evangelism is hard, because we're saying, I've got my whole way of life that's bound up with Christ, and you have a whole way of life that is currently not bound up with Christ and is therefore bound up with other things. And I'm inviting you to radically reorientate your whole way of life. I'm not just asking you to swap one set of abstract beliefs for another, although I am doing that, (laughs) you see. And that's why evangelism's hard. And that's why it is crucial to try and make these connections to what really matters, what people really value, and to, to find those ways in to the, to the individual human being that we're conversing with. What are their issues? What do they care about? How can I try and show the relevance of Christ and the Christian way of life to what they're talking about? And how, how can I try and get them to recognise, in a way perhaps that they need to if they haven't before, that, that actually they do care about what's true and false and so on, you know. We hear all this stuff about postmodernism and people don't care about truth anymore, but people watch game shows on TV ad nauseum. The whole point of game shows on TV is generally, did someone say the right answer to the question? <laughs> That's where the entire drama of the thing comes from. Who gave the most right answers to the questions? That means believing in truth. <laughs> people believe in truth in their everyday life and they believe it matters they believe it matters when they take medicine then they'll read the instructions on the medicine packet before taking the medicine because they don't want to get the wrong dose because they know that it's true sometimes if you take the wrong dose it's not particularly good for you (laughs) they only proclaim a sort of belief in relativism when it comes to things like morals and religion and things I don't want to talk about and and, and so on. Um, but that is, in a sense, deeply sort of modernistic. I mean, back in the 1930s and so on, you would have had philosophers saying, yeah, you know, we can, we can know this empirical stuff and all of this stuff about meanings and values and God and beauty and all that, that's out the window because you can't talk about it in this scientific kind of a way. Well, it just means science is a very limited way of talking about a limited range of stuff. Um, Indeed, you need to believe in, as I was chatting to someone over over the coffee table earlier, you need to believe in a whole load of stuff that you can't get at through science in order to do science. Things like logic, honesty, language as a way of communicating ideas from one person to another, uh, etc., etc. And we do invest ourselves in things depending on whether we think they're true or false of value or not and so on so we we do need to try to find creative ways of opening up and connecting the truth of the gospel to the to the goodness and the beauty of christ as well as the truth of christ now i am the way the truth and the life and it's a whole package deal Uh, and we 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 can get a sort of narrow-minded focus in apologetics on Evidence, evidence, evidence. Uh, 
and, and sometimes you might need to kind of take that step back and, and think more broadly and sort of at a more sort of personal and existential kind of level about things. Um, I think I've said enough. <laughs> Thank you. Great question, mate. Paul, I'm going to just ask if we now need to wrap up. Is that right? Peter, thank you very much. Indeed. Right. Really appreciate that. Should we just thank you? Thank you. Get me the slides back on the slides back on the